well, as you know, we've been uh, having a few Sunday evenings uh, looking at the various prayers of uh, the Apostle Paul. We've looked at his prayer uh, in Philippians and in Colossians, and tonight we're going to turn to one of the two prayers that he prays on behalf of his friends, the Ephesians. So it's Ephesians uh, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Amen. May God's uh, word touch our hearts. Now, uh, there's something that is extremely educational about listening in on Paul praying, which is really what we're, we're doing tonight. You know, it's almost as if we're going into a room and there he is kneeling uh, in front of his bed uh, and, he's, and he's praying and we're able to just eavesdrop and listen to, to what the apostle Paul prays. And it is extremely informative because there is a kind of maturity about his praying that is quite different from, frankly, the way that I would pray. You know what it's like? We can be rather lazy at times in our prayers, and sometimes we say, Lord, bless so-and-so. And if we really thought about it, particularly if they're a Christian, we know that God has already blessed them with every spiritual blessing that there is possibly to give in the heavenly places. Sometimes we, we pray that God will be with so-and-so. And of course, the reality of the situation is God will never leave us or forsake us. Um, he is always with us. And maybe, you know, we need to move a little bit further on as far as the depth and the maturity of the things that we pray for as far as our friends are concerned. That's what I learned as I was thinking about this this week, I thought, I think there's a lot more maturing that I could do as far as how I pray. And of course, the whole point and objective of this series of uh, studies that we're doing in Paul's prayer is, is so that it can be inspiring and helpful and informative for us so that our prayer life might be something that, that develops and grows both as individuals and as far as the collective nature of the, of the church is concerned. Uh, somebody's put this rather well, and they said that uh, when you look at some of these prayers of Paul, 
what you hopefully, what we all should hopefully learn to do at the end of the day is learn to pray like an apostle, you know, to pray like an apostle uh, would pray. So let's look at, at one or two of the things that are here that help us to be mature uh, as we think of how educationally we can learn how to pray properly. Now, there's a couple of things just from the point of view of, of, uh, of introduction uh, before I get to the main part I want to focus on. Uh, the first one, which is, is just worth reminding, some of these things are things that we all know, but it's good to be reminded about them. And the first thing is this, that um, somebody who's mature in prayer, it's not a flash in the pan, it's not a one-off, uh, there is a consistency and there is a persistency in the apostles' prayer. Let me just point that out to you. He says in verse 15 that, you know, ever since he, he first heard about their faith in the Lord, that these people had become Christians. And of course he knew most of them because he'd been in Ephesus. And ever since he heard about the news, you know, he has continued to pray for them. In fact, in verse 16, he says, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, and I keep asking that the God of our Father... Quite interesting just to see the verbs that are used there. It's the continual type of prayer persistency that he talks about. And, you know, that persistency, I think, it's something that emphasizes our continual dependency and need of God. Um, you know, most of us will remember David and, and Joan Short. I remember being round uh, in the house in Victoria uh, Street once and David pointing out to me uh, a particular chair in the room. And he said, this chair actually belonged to George Mueller. Now that name might mean nothing to some of you, but if you look back your Christian history, you'll learn about Mueller's orphanages down in Bristol. And how that man, George Mueller, maintained all of that as a faith ministry, you know. And he was renowned for his prayers on behalf of the children and the Lord's work. And he said, this was the chair that Mueller used to kneel at and he used to pray at. And he told me the story of uh, a prayer list that Mueller had, praying for people uh, for, for many years. And during the course of his lifetime, you know, he saw a number of these people converted. And the interesting thing was the, the, the rest of the people on that list were converted after the death of Mueller. So the prayers, the persistent prayers, as we learn, of a righteous man, they do avail much. And it's good for us just to remember the importance of dependence and persistence in God. So that's the first kind of introductory bit. And the second kind of introductory bit about prayer from verse 16 is, is the idea of, of thankfulness. You know, in, in that persistence, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And, you know, it's such an essential part in making us people who are grateful and who are joyful that when we come to prayer, that we are that we give thanks to God and remember all that he has done and all the many blessings that we have in Christ and everything that we possess as part of his great provision for us. And uh, it's, uh, it's something that, uh, 
you know, as they say, there's always something to give thanks for. I may have told this story uh, uh, before. I, I, my dad used to have this big uh, collection of books as a teenager. I used to kind of leaf into them, and there was a there was a two-volume thing by a man called Alexander White on Bible characters, and there was a story that he preached in Edinburgh, and uh, every every time he prayed. He, he would give thanks. That was something that was very clear and obvious, the, the, the gratitude in his prayers. And uh, there was one day in Edinburgh, in the middle of winter, you know, and the sleet was coming down horizontal, and the folks were thinking, I wonder what the old boy is going to give thanks for today. You know, can't be too much. And as he got up, he gave thanks and said, you know, thank you, Lord, that the weather's not like this every day. <laughs> so there is always something to to be grateful for. You know, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Such an important verse that, you know, to be full of gratitude. And and that's what he says as far as his prayers are concerned. I've not stopped giving thanks uh, for you. But it's what he prays for that I've I've found the most helpful and I want to spend really the bulk of our time on today. So he essentially prays for three things as far as his friends are concerned. Uh, The first one, in verse number 18, he prays that the eyes of their heart might be enlightened in order that they might know the hope to which God has called them. That's number one. The second thing that he prays for, following on from that, that the eyes of their heart might be enlightened in order that they might know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in his holy people. And the third thing that he prays for, verse number 19, that the eyes of their understanding might be opened so that they might know his incomparably great power for us who believe. So so three things. He's praying for an understanding and a knowledge in the hearts of his friends about God's hope that he gives to them, about God's inheritance, for them and about God's power for them. Hope, inheritance, and power. That's what he prays for. But if you look at the way the the verse reads, you'll see that these three things actually, they they, kind of flow out of something that is is bigger uh, than that. Uh, Look at how the prayer kind of starts off. The, The prayer really starts off um, in verse 17, at the end of the verse, where he's, he's making the prayer that the glorious Father would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know him better. So that the kind of overarching prayer that he has for them is that they would know God better. That they would know what God is like. And, and, and the three things that I've just mentioned are the things that he wants them to know about God so that they will know him better. The whole idea of the hope, the inheritance, and and the power. And of course, it's quite clear on the fact that it is God that gives insight and understanding and opens the eyes of our heart so that we see that. You know, so the natural people in our world, you know, there's so much that they don't see because their eyes have not been opened by God's Spirit. They, they, are, they are spiritually discerned things. And, 
at a natural level, although people have intelligence and have reasoning, you know, they don't have spiritual insight, which is given by, by God himself. Now, that's a very real thing, because you know, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of people who, who don't believe, so they can't see the glory of the gospel of Christ and be saved. Their eyes are blinded by Satan. That's why when the Lord Jesus came, he said, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness. You'll have the light of life. That's why Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, in the same way God said when he created the world, let the uh, light shine out of darkness. That same light has now shone into our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So there is that light that comes from the insight that God alone by his Spirit gives to us. And that's what he's praying, that God will open your eyes, the eyes of your heart. And so what he's praying for his friends is that it's not just that when they open their eyes every morning, they will see things. But when they open their eyes, then the eyes of their heart will be opened at the same time. Now, you must remember that in the Bible, when it talks about the heart, it's not just talking about emotions. You know, it's talking about the core of our being, who we are, right in the center. And that the eyes of our, uh, of our inner person might have that discernment to, to, to see these things, the hope, the inheritance, the power. That's what he prays for his friends. That's this mature prayer that he wants for these people, that God will open their eyes to that. And so our prayer is that God opens our eyes as we just think about this uh, a little bit more tonight. So let's just take them one by one. Um, so this idea from verse 18, uh, when he talks about hope. So basically what he's saying is this. He says, uh, this is my prayer for you. Um, I want you to understand your, your future certainty in Christ. That's your great hope. And of course, we, we do realize that the Bible uses the word hope in a completely different way than normally it's used. It's not about, oh, maybe this will happen. I hope it will. No, no. It's, it's a certainty. It's just the fact that it's in the future, but it's absolutely assured and, and his prayer for them is, you know, I'd, my prayer for you, my friends, is that you will have this understanding to really see increasingly the hope to which God has called you to. Now, somebody prayed that for me every day, you know, and I had an increasing awareness of, of my hope in Christ. You know, I think that would make a massive difference, you know, in the different circumstances of life that you, you find yourself in. Let, let's just try and think about some of the things that are involved in that. You know, there's so many verses that we could turn to here. You might want to jot some of them down. You know, uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul which is sure and steadfast. Now, we, we, we mix the metaphor slightly in the, in the hymn, you know, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, but the idea is the same. It's of certainty, something that can't be shaken. 
uh, and can't move beneath your feet. We have a strong anchor as far as our future is concerned that nothing can shift and nothing can change. As far as the believer in Christ is concerned that uh, when, when we die... You know, we will immediately be in the presence of Christ. And we will be at home with the Lord. And we will have an eternal building rather than a temporary tent of existence. A building that is eternal in the heavens and that can't be corrupted. You know, many people in funerals that are secular or humanist, you know, there's almost a kind of, at times, attempt, blase attempt to, um, uh, to, to color things over and to celebrate what they think uh, is going to be fine. And, uh, you know, I was, I was kind of solemnized recently in reading some verses from John chapter 8 when Jesus spoke to the people. And he said, you will die in your sins. And where I am, there, you, you, you cannot be. You will never be. You cannot come because you will die in your sins. Now, the great hope of the believer is that our sins have been dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ. Dealt with completely, which means that when we die, we don't die in our sins. We die in Christ. And when we close our eyes on earth, we waken up immediately and open them in heaven. And we see the face of Christ. And that is the tremendous hope that is open for the believer. As is the coming of the Lord Jesus. Some of us may never die. You know, we live with the hope of Christ's return. That at any moment, he could come and we would be snatched away by Christ himself. Let me draw your attention just to a couple of psalms, portions of psalms that, that kind of um, expand on this idea of our great hope. You might want to just turn to a couple of these. Psalm 16. Um, these, these verses are applied in Acts chapter 2 by Peter on the day of Pentecost to Christ. Um, but there is an aspect that can be applied to us. Look at uh, Psalm 16, verse um, 9. Therefore my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful, faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That is the Christian hope. Eternal pleasures at God's right hand. Look at the next psalm. Uh, psalm number 17. If you read the whole psalm, it's about the, the wicked and uh, when they die. But look at, in contrast to them, um, what he says about himself as a believer. Verse 15. As for me, authorized version, I'll use a word here, I will be satisfied and will see your face 
When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. You know, to awake in the presence of Christ and be totally and eternally satisfied in his presence. Here's another one, Psalm 49 this time, which is the one actually that really contrasts the the unbeliever and the believer. Psalm 49 and uh, verse 10, where it says this, um, as far as the wicked are concerned, all can see that the wise die, that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others, their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. People, despite their wealth, don't endure. They're like the beasts that perish. Verse 15. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. We can go on. And this is Paul's prayer. And this, this is perhaps what I should increasingly be learning to pray for my friends. You know, that increasingly the eyes of their understanding will be opened to understand the hope to which God has called them to. What a tremendous difference that would make to all of us. Let's, let's move on to the second one. And we're looking at God's inheritance now uh, in verse 18. Now, you can see how this is partly related to what we've just spoken about. Uh, We have an inheritance. We were reminded about that this morning from 1 Peter 1. That's incorruptible. That's undefiled. uh, And that fades not away. I like the way that that Rod put that when he said it's death-proof, it's sin-proof, and it's it's time-proof, this inheritance that belongs to the believer. But it's this other point that really I'd like to kind of highlight here because, I mean, the way that it actually reads, if you look at it, it's not so much my inheritance, but it's God's inheritance. You see that? The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. This is amazing, actually. You know, I can understand, you know, the inheritance that, that, that God has given to me and how I rejoice in that. But but this is talking about the fact that God looks on me as part of being his holy people and and he sees that as a tremendous inheritance, something that gives him great joy. And in fact, the prayer is that we understand this, that we increasingly see this fact that God has an inheritance in his people, how God views his own people. Now, I guess the way that we think about it should go something like this. You know, here we are, created by the hand of God, and yet we've fallen, and we've been corrupted, and sin has just changed everything and wasted it all. And, uh, and, and God's great desire is that lost humanity should be redeemed. So much so that he comes in the person of his son, and takes our sin and our sorrows and dies for our sakes upon the cross so that we might be rescued from the grip of sin and from the grip of Satan and that we might be carried through to that eternal dwelling place of heaven one day. 
you know. And, and he looks upon us as his special, unique, holy people, set apart. He looks upon us as his bride for which he died. He looks upon us as his flock of which he is the shepherd in his care and in his concern. And his great joy is that one day we will be with him. You know, it's like the prayer that the Lord Jesus made in John chapter 17, that tremendous prayer, you know, uh, just before Calvary, where he says, as part of it, you know, I pray for them, and I pray that they will be with me one day so that they might behold my glory, the glory that I had with you before the world was. And, and that prayer of Christ will be answered. And we will be with him. And we will see it. And he will rejoice in that. It's almost like the prodigal son imagery, isn't it? When the prodigal returns and the father is so delighted and overcome with joy that the prodigal has returned. And, and, and that's the prayer that is here. That we increasingly might understand something about how God views his people as his inheritance. And, and, and that's what we should be praying for our friends. That they understand their hope, but that they understand this. Because it gives an understanding of my personal value before God. What God thinks about me. How much he loves me. But it also helps me understand how he loves each and every one of the members of the Church of Christ. And if God thinks that of them, how should I think about them? I should view them in the same way. And it affects my understanding uh, of all of that. This is, a, this is a massive practical point for all of us as we look out and think on the church in general. So, I mean, you can understand, I think, what I was driving at when I said that when I look at this, it's such a, an education. There's such maturity about praying as far as Paul is concerned. And if I could just kind of grasp this to some small extent and begin praying like this for my friends and for my family, that they would increasingly understand how God sees his people as his special inheritance. It'd be good if we all tried to kind of be inspired by this and incorporate these things and pray like an apostle uh, in our own private prayers and in our corporate prayer. Let's come to the last one as we finish. And the last one from verse 19, and his incomparably great power. So uh, it's the third point. We're eavesdropping. We're listening in and it comes to this point. Praise for these people. This is what I want you to understand. I want you to learn this. For, for all of these people back in Ephesus, here is my prayer for them, that their eyes might be opened to God's great power on their behalf. Couldn't help but think about that instance in the Old Testament when uh, Elisha and his servant are in the city of Samaria and it's surrounded and you know, Gehazi is panicking and uh, not sure what to do. And, and Elisha prays. And he prays and he says, open his eyes. And when Gehazi's eyes are open, 
he sees that there are chariots. The chariots of God are just surrounding the city and surrounding Elisha as far as protection is concerned. I mean, they were there all the time. It wasn't as if that prayer made them appear. They were there. It was just the fact that he couldn't see them. And the prayer is that we might see God's power on our behalf. Now, what is the power of God that is available and that works in the lives of the people of God? Well, I mean, it's it's phenomenal when you read down the verses that follow here to the end of the chapter. Because he goes on to say, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Can you think about that? You know, do we really believe that? The same power that raised Christ from the dead, from death to life, is the same power that is at work in me. In fact, it's more than just the resurrection that is mentioned here. I mean, it, it talks about the ascension of Christ. You think about that. You ever really imagine the ascension in your mind, how it all took place? You know, Christ leaves the Mount of Olives. They watch him ascend through the, the cloud. He goes up through the sky that they could see, disappears beyond the, beyond the clouds, and, and goes into the stratosphere through space. You know? And... Uh, it's almost as if it's a victory procession back to the throne of God, right up into heaven itself. You know, Satan is described as being the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2. Just think of all these demonic forces, evil angels, you know, flying around in the, in the atmosphere, you know, and Christ just triumphantly ascends through all of that right back to the throne of God, you know, with the applause of heaven as they, as they acclaim him for everything that he's achieved and been able to do. I mean, that's the power. Yes, resurrection, but ascension and the, the coronation and the exaltation and the crowning of Christ. That's all part of what is described here in these closing verses. Just think of the power of God that did all of that. Placed everything under the feet of Christ. Total authority. And then let's think about what he says. This is the same power. The same power. Now now let's just think about it and try and follow it through. I mean, if we were to read down chapter 2, just the, the verses that follow on from where we finished our reading. He's making the point there that we were dead. You know, our our terrible condition, our terrible predicament, spiritual death, you know, cobwebs over our soul, the dust of death upon us, absolutely dead to God. Nothing that we could do about it. Not a spark of life. What does the gospel do? What does the Lord Jesus Christ do when I place my faith in him? I'm born again. There is spiritual life. There is new life. There is regeneration. And I come alive to God. And I see these things that I never saw before. And I love these things that I never loved before. And it's because I've got new life. And I've, been, I've passed over from death to life. That's the power of the gospel that does that. And that absolutely happens. 
to every Christian who places faith in Christ. New life. Born again. Raised with Christ. The power of God will preserve and keep me. You know, we we recently, as you know, did Ephesians. We did the armor of God bit in chapter 6, which is all about standing firm in the evil day under the onslaught of satanic attack. Our our adversary, the, the devil, who goes around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. And can we stand against that? We can stand against that. We can prevail. We can stand firm for the faith and for good and righteousness and for Christ because God gives us that power through His Spirit. And what will take us all the way through to the glory that I was talking about at the start, that will take my soul at the moment of death from this world and translate me right to heaven, it's the power of God that will do that. And on the day of resurrection, when Christ returns, what will split the ground and cause my decomposed body to come together and rise up to meet Christ in the air? What does that? It's the power of God. And the power of God is at work in every believer's life. We just need eyes to see that, increasingly. The eyes of our heart need to be open. Now, as I was saying at the start, if only, you know, when I opened my eyes in the morning, the eyes of my heart were also opened so that I saw these three things. Hope, inheritance, and power. You know, our job is to pray for each other. This is the prayer of Paul. And it should be the educated mature prayer that we start to to pray ourselves for those who are our friends and believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we kind of leave Paul, we tiptoe out of the room after having listened in uh, to, to what he's been saying and hopefully, you know, into this coming week, we take these principles. We're inspired by the whole idea of the importance of praying Yes, personally, but maybe increasingly as a church. You know, to come together and encourage one another and deepen our prayer life. That's why we've, of course, come up with this series of talks on Sunday evenings. Because we feel that prayer is such an important part and should be an increasingly important part of the life of this church. That God would open our eyes to see these things together. May he bless Paul's prayers to be incorporated into into our prayers. Lord, thank you for what we've been able to just uh, eavesdrop into tonight. The tremendously powerful prayer of Paul. And Lord, we make these prayers for ourselves tonight and help us to move beyond uh, immaturity and superficiality sometimes in the prayers that we offer Uh, to have a real deep impact on our friends and fellow believers by praying like he prayed, that all our eyes might be opened so that we might understand the hope to which he has called us to and of the riches of his inheritance in his people and also 
this tremendous power that is at work in us. Lord, we just commit each one of us to you tonight with our gratitude for being able to be under the sound of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.